NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Canadian province of Ontario says it needs more electricity and can't do without two more of its can-do nuclear reactors. Listen, if I had my druthers, it would be 100% hydroelectric. Nuclear power has an important role to play. We want to balance that with other sources uh, of electricity moving forward. But critics claim conservation and alternative energy sources make nuclear power in Canada unnecessary. That's the technology that has gotten us into the problem we're in right now, so you shouldn't be looking at it as a way to dig yourself out. And fears Florida's Lake Okeechobee could burst through its dike. If the lake were at 21 feet and a major hurricane were to come through today, a breach could occur on the south side. Flooding could extend about 32 miles south and remain inundated for up to 45 days as they repair the dike. This week on Living on Earth, stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Nuclear power is set to make a major comeback in North America. The Bush administration recently pushed a plan through Congress that grants as much as $15 billion in federal aid to jumpstart nuclear power plant construction in the United States. And now in Canada, the provincial government of Ontario has just announced it will spend $40 billion to upgrade old atomic power stations and build some new ones. Joining me from Ottawa now is Bob Carty. He's a senior journalist with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Hi, Bob. Hi, Steve. So Canada eventually stopped building nuclear power plants uh, in the 90s after building a lot of them in the 60s. Why have you guys changed your minds? Well, a number of things happened since about 93 when the last power plant went up. It had huge cost overruns. You know, we're still paying on our electricity bills for the debt of $30 billion for that plant. So, yes, as you say, nuclear was out of favor. But since then, uh, these things have happened. The economy boomed. Demand for electricity increased. The population is growing. At the same time, a previous conservative government cut conservation. So there are no gains happening there. So the current situation is that you have a reliance upon nuclear hydro and coal. And that's grown, actually, in recent years because there's been so many breakdowns at the can-do nuclear reactors that we have here, bursting pipes, radiation leaks, and so on. Eight reactors had to be closed down to be repaired. Four of them are still closed down, and that meant generating more and more electricity with coal, which is very polluting, contributes about 25% of Ontario's entire greenhouse gases, and doctors say actually perhaps it kills about 1,500 people a year because of respiratory problems. So something had to be done to solve all those problems and to keep the lights on. I don't think any of this, though, you don't see a mention, Steve, in any of the uh, documentation from the government about this being uh, motivated in any sense by Kyoto. So explain to me this Ontario plan uh, financially. How much uh, is the government going to spend on nuclear and how much on renewables and conservation? Well, the government says this is a multi-year, 60 U.S. billion dollar plan. Of that, a good chunk, $40 billion, is going to build two new nuclear uh, facilities and refurbish or repair four existing ones. And then they have another $20 billion or so to invest in conservation, to develop more hydroelectricity, to stimulate solar, wind, biomass, uh, electricity production. It's called a balanced plan by the Minister of Energy, Dwight Duncan, and here's a little tape from him. We're looking at probably two new reactors, and uh, that is a modest plan on the nuclear side, but it's a robust plan on uh, renewables, on uh, conservation, and on ensuring reliability as we move forward. Listen, if I had my druthers, it would be 100% hydroelectric. Nuclear power has an important role to play. We want to balance that with other sources uh, of electricity. We believe 
that this plan will provide Ontario with a stable, reliable, affordable, competitive electricity system moving forward. Now, he seems to be holding his nose a bit there on the nuclear power and likes hydro, so why doesn't he just go that way? Well, it's complicated. There's only a certain amount of hydro resources left in Ontario. We have a long tradition in hydro generation. The big rivers in the south, think of the St. Lawrence, you think of Niagara. They're all dammed. There are uh, rivers in the far north of Ontario, but this is a big province, and you lose a lot of power just in transmission from the north to the south. But one thing that's really ironic is that uh, there there could be a lot of hydro generation on a sort of micro scale, you know, very small rivers. There could also be a reversal of a previous decision. Earlier governments, conservative governments, concentrating so much on nuclear, shut down small river or medium-sized river dams. They took the generators out too costly, they said, to maintain them. So critics say that, you know, you could get quite a bit of power by putting turbines back in those existing rivers. Now, how has the environmental community responded to this announcement? Well, they say, first of all, that uh, that Ontario's uh, commitment to shutting down the coal generation of electricity is a bit in doubt now. Originally, it was going to be shut down next year. Now it's uh, put off at least two years, and who knows when there'll be new power in hand. So they're a bit concerned about that issue. But in terms of turning nuclear, the environmentalists say that all of Ontario's future needs could, in fact, be met by conservation and alternative generation. They, they say, look, California's done it. They've, in conservation, saved as much electricity as nuclear plants of uh, Ontario Generate. Here's Keith Stewart, Steve. Uh, Keith Stewart runs the climate change campaign at the World Wildlife Federation of Canada. This is about a 20% growth in nuclear power from what we have right now online. And we actually are seeing that consumption will continue to grow, so it's not a conservation plan. A conservation plan means you use less, not you use more. And an effective nuclear strategy right now would be to phase out what we have as they come to the end of their life because it's a technology that has gotten us into the problem we're in right now, so you shouldn't be looking at it as a way to dig yourself out. Now, Bob, with this expansion of nuclear, how is Canada going to handle the nuclear waste? Well, we have about... 30,000 tons of highly radioactive uh, waste uh, since uh, built up over since the 60s, uh, Steve, and no disposal plan at all. In fact, a, a sort of satirical songwriter here says it's like putting up an outhouse without digging a hole. <laughs> okay, but really, Bob, where is the waste right now then? It's just sitting on site. It's uh, at the nuclear plants. It's either in containers or uh, uh, sitting in uh, heavy water uh, tanks uh, that are on the facility there just waiting for a plan. Uh, there have been a lot of studies. They've dug into the Precambrian Shield Rock of uh, Ontario and Manitoba. They've uh, looked at different technologies, but they haven't made the investment. They haven't made the decision. They've put it off, to, uh, I guess, for future generations to pay the cost. Bob Carty is a senior journalist with the National Radio Network of Canada, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Thanks so much, Bob. You're welcome, Steve. As the Clinton administration was leaving office, it decreed that certain wild areas of national forests should remain free of roads. The Bush White House has since sought to roll back the roadless rules, saying, among other things, that local officials should have more control. Ironically, in Oregon, the Bush administration is now insisting that a roadless area be opened up for logging, despite the objections of the state's governor. At issue is part of a half million acres that burned in 2002 in the famous Biscuit Forest Fire. Conservationists say leaving the burned forest is the best way to regenerate the trees and the rare vegetation found there. But since the fire, timber companies have been trying to enter the area to cut damaged trees before they decay, and the Forest Service has now granted some limited access. Oregon Public Broadcasting's Lee Garnett has our story. 
For a low-key guy, Oregon Governor Ted Kulongoski is hopping mad. As he recalls it, the Bush administration told him and 49 other governors that if they wanted to preserve the roadless areas of federal forests in their states, they had to drop a petition stating as much. The governor is doing that. He also filed a lawsuit to protect the burned area, and he's used the channels that come with the office of governor. But last week, for the first time since the Clinton administration, the U.S. Forest Service auctioned off logging rights in a roadless area. It was the roadless area burned by the giant biscuit fire. Oregon Governor Kulongoski says he feels betrayed. I thought I had an understanding, and I thought that the federal government's uh, position was until all of the administrative procedures and all these legal issues get resolved, there would be a status quo. Uh, obviously, that there's been a change of heart, and uh, I just think that we should have the status quo until this is all resolved. The fight over what should be done with land burned in the Biscuit Fire has been fierce. Public lands, not private profit. Public lands, not private profit. Public lands, not private profit. This demonstration in Portland is one of many in the last four years. More than 100 protesters have been arrested at the logging sites, and several of them have gone to jail. One of them, George Sexton, is conservation director for the Klamath Siskiyou Wildland Center. He says logging the burned area is going to harm, not help, the forest recovery. And so they're only taking the biggest, best trees, which are extremely important for future soil, for holding together the steep slopes above salmon-bearing streams, and for wildlife habitat and recruitment. They need to be spending these types of resources going into the small diameter plantations that they've created throughout the landscape and providing sustainable jobs and doing real fire prevention instead of going in for one last old growth gold rush in the matrix lands. New and controversial research from Oregon State University seems to back up the idea of letting the burned forest lie. Graduate student Dan Donato studied the landscape left behind by the biscuit burn and found that new trees were sprouting from the ashes. He got his paper published in the journal Science, but he encountered some resistance from some at his own university. Soon, he found himself testifying before a congressional subcommittee convened in Medford, Oregon. We found substantial conifer establishment two and three years after the fire and that seedlings were surviving multiple years. Mature trees distributed throughout the burn that had not been killed by the fire probably acted as seed sources, and this underscores the importance of surviving trees to forest regeneration. Then Donato and his fellow researchers compared areas left alone with those that had been salvaged logged. The regeneration we observed was reduced by 71% as a result of the salvage operations. This was due to soil disturbance and burial by woody materials. But forestry is economics as much as science. Many people in this part of Oregon are just as passionate that salvage logging provides jobs and helps pay to replant the forest. Former Oregon State Republican Party Chairman Kevin Mannix spoke at a rally in Medford outside the Forest Service office while inside, timber sales were up for bidding. I thank you for coming here today to, to show your support for our timber workers, for those involved in the timber industry, and for the fair, balanced, and progressive policies that are now finally being implemented so that we can get Oregonians back to work, so that we can protect our forests from the depredations of nature which may occur, so that we can work with nature to provide productive jobs for Oregonians. As the Undersecretary of Natural Resources for the Department of Agriculture, Mark Ray oversees the U.S. Forest Service. Although he's a senior administration official, he's reportedly been closely involved in the Biscuit Fire timber auctions. 
Ray says the governor of Oregon has no reason to be upset. The governor has a very different recollection of our discussions than I do. Ray is referring to a meeting he had with Governor Kulangoski more than a year ago, trying to settle lawsuits about salvage logging in the Biscuit Fire area. The purpose of that discussion was to see whether the state could be of assistance in trying to help broker a mediation. Ultimately, uh, that wasn't possible, and what we, uh, we agreed to that day was that... Uh, we would agree to disagree. Ray says he's not been pulling the strings from Washington, D.C. to log in roadless areas of Oregon's Siskiyou National Forest. And he says the Bush administration is not contradicting its stated effort to return more authority over public land to states and local residents. So this is a case where, uh, you know, a, a good faith negotiation failed. Uh, the plaintiffs thought uh, that they could prevail in stopping virtually all harvesting in both the roadless and most of the roaded areas, uh, and uh, that's not what the, the courts uh, decided. At least two more lawsuits are still pending about proposed logging in the Biscuit Fire area. Environmentalists say if logging is permitted in the roadless area of the Biscuit Fire, it will set a precedent. But timber supporters point out that they're going to be able to harvest only about 20 percent of the trees originally promised by the Forest Service. On Friday, June 9th, the Silver Creek Timber Company purchased the right to log 360 acres in the roadless area of the Biscuit Fire. For Living on Earth, I'm Lee Garnett. Coming up, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers comes to attention in front of Congress. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. With the new hurricane season already underway, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is doing some serious self-examination about what went wrong during the disaster of Hurricane Katrina. In a recent report, the Corps admits making major mistakes in the design and construction of levees around New Orleans. But critics of the Army engineers charge the problems go much deeper than that. They say too many of the massive water control projects the Corps builds around the country waste taxpayer money, harm the environment, and in the end fail to protect people and property from flooding. Now there's a move in Congress to give the Corps new marching orders. But as Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports, that would also require some big changes in the way Congress itself operates. The Army Corps faced tough questions when levees failed, flooding thousands of homes. But this wasn't last year in New Orleans. This was 13 years ago, when the Mississippi put much of the Midwest underwater. President Clinton asked retired Corps General Gerald Galloway to find out what went wrong. We recommended, first of all, we needed a national flood policy because we don't have a federal water policy. Galloway's report called for major policy changes to strengthen flood protection for communities and discourage development in floodplains. It was a landmark study on the heels of a disaster that had captured national headlines. And the result? Sad to say that uh, many of the smaller ones were implemented. The big ones, the ones that counted, were not. The half-life of the memory of the flood is pretty short, and I'm afraid that's what happened after the 93 flood. Other reports followed, detailing problems with the way the Army Corps plans and designs its water control projects. The National Academy of Sciences called for independent peer review of project designs, and the Government Accountability Office found serious flaws in the cost-benefit analyses used to determine which projects to build. Now, these might sound like bureaucratic, inside-the-beltway issues, but they hit home for Pam DeShiel. She lives in the Lower Ninth Ward of New Orleans, near the Industrial Canal. The Corps had proposed a massive new lock to let larger ships through. 
DeShiel and other neighborhood activists argued that the money could be put to better use. For many, many years, we've been saying, put that $700 million into hurricane protection, and it never happened. Then came Katrina. The levee along the Industrial Canal fell apart, and Shields home was among the thousands flooded. Core critics say the agency must prioritize its projects to better protect people, spend more wisely, and limit environmental damage. And they say the time for those changes is now, while the lessons of Katrina are still fresh. A crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Historian and writer John Barry told an audience of engineers and scientists at the National Academy of Sciences in Washington that they should work to change the Army Corps. He says that will also mean changing the way Congress decides which projects to fund. The priorities are set by the Congress. Whatever congressman happens to sit on the right committee or gets a favor from the leadership, those are the projects that get built. Money continues to go to economic projects rather than protecting people's lives. As Barry and others describe it, Congress and the Corps engage in a sort of mutual backscratching that ensures big budgets for the Corps and big projects for the home states of key members of Congress. Steve Ellis is with the watchdog group Taxpayers for Common Sense. This is an agency that knows who, where its bread is buttered, and so they take care of members of Congress. We have to demand that... We have mechanisms prioritizing core projects across this country, so it becomes less about political muscle and more about project merit. A bill before the Senate might do just that. A measure by Wisconsin Democrat Russ Feingold and Arizona Republican John McCain would make the Corps set priorities. For the first time, each proposed project would be ranked by its importance. The senators also want more independent peer review of costly or controversial projects top core officials were not available for comment. In past testimony before Congress, officials have said the Corps is already working to set priorities on projects and to use more outside review. But core critics like Cynthia Sartu say the changes so far have been superficial. Sartu leads a collection of southern environmental groups called the Gulf Restoration Network. She says restoring the Gulf can't happen without modernizing the Corps. So that, you know, that's our overall goal, is to bring the Corps into the 21st century to require them to do holistic planning and design so that the citizens who are relying on the Corps to protect their livelihoods and their lives can actually rely on that agency. Sartu admits it's a long shot. The Corps is one of the oldest and most entrenched agencies in government. And the changes could limit one of the most prized perks in Congress, bringing home big money projects. But the reformers seem to have taken up the Corps' own motto in this fight, let us try. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Lake Okeechobee in south-central Florida is the largest freshwater lake in the continental United States, except for Lake Michigan. Back in the 1920s, hurricane-related flooding from the lake killed thousands of area residents. So, starting in the 1930s, the Army Corps of Engineers turned Lake Okeechobee into a reservoir half the size of Rhode Island by building Hoover Dyke. The dyke is as wide as a football field, 
three stories high and 143 miles long. Foot by foot, mile by mile, the work went on. Drilling, blasting, digging, bite by bite, five to eight cubic yards per mouthful. Slowly, persistently gouging the bottom to build up the top. Hoover Dyke was designed to tame Mother Nature. Not only was it to contain the damage and devastation from hurricanes, which regularly ravaged the region, it also helped to turn the timber marshland of central Florida into fertile soil for sugarcane. Water that once ran wild. Water that ruined the rich terrain. Water that took lives and land. Put disaster in the headlines and death upon the soil. Now, it just waits there. Calm, peaceful, ready to do the bidding of man and his machine. But today, the huge dirt barrier is leaking, and there are fears Mother Nature could strike with a vengeance, or terrorists might take advantage of the dike's vulnerabilities. 60,000 people live around Lake Okeechobee, and federal security officials have designed an evacuation plan. But they refuse to show local residents detailed maps depicting Hoover Dyke's most critical areas, saying they don't want to tip off would-be terrorists. Brian Skoloff of the Associated Press in nearby West Palm Beach has been covering the issue. Hi, Brian. How are you doing, Steve? Now, what exactly is the security concern here? The, the Army Corps of Engineers simply – they've put together um, a bunch of uh, flood maps that would show where water would flow if certain areas of the dike were breached, uh, whether in a hurricane or for any other circumstance. And, and they've released uh, one specific map that shows some detail of where breaches would go, how high flood water would rise, and, and how far it would move away from the lake and down into the area towns. But they do have a number of maps that they're simply not releasing, basically saying that they are so detailed – uh, showing specific sites along the dike that if a breach were to occur there, exactly how fast water would flow out, where it would go, how high it would be. And they're simply concerned that uh, if that information were to fall into the wrong hands, uh, terrorists could use it to uh, cause some damage um, and possibly loss of life around the lake. Now, it would seem to be obvious that where the vulnerabilities are, both uh, in what the Hoover Dike and throughout the floodplain. Sure. It is pretty obvious. I mean, you know, if you breach the dike at any point, um, a large enough hole in the dike obviously is going to create a hole in the shoreline and, and water is going to flow out. Um, and, you know, the whole idea that the Corps is not releasing these maps may not be that big of a deal for the public. The public is being uh, made aware of evacuation plans and uh, different things they need to do to prepare. These maps are being given to all the emergency planners in the area to use in developing their evacuation plans. So it's, it's not that urgent that residents need to see these these maps. Residents are just concerned that they're not being told everything they need to know um, simply because, you know, they live right up against this dike and they see images of Katrina in New Orleans and, and they're frightened. Now, I understand that the Army Corps of Engineers has stopped working on the dike. Why is that? Yeah, they, they've encountered some problems with the work that they were trying to do in a specific point. There's a section. They've broken up their work into about eight sections on this 143-mile dike. Um, this section that they're working on now is on the south side of the lake. It's about 26 miles long. Um, the contractor that was working there was working to put a 36-foot deep, two-foot-thick concrete wall straight down into the middle of the dike to create this this barrier to keep water from seeping out. What they were finding was happening, though, is the the 
dike itself now is made up of of soil dredged from the lake, uh, shell pieces, just muck that was pounded together to create this wall. And as they're digging this trench to put the concrete wall in, the wall is caving in on itself and filling the trench. So obviously that technique was not working. So they decided they weren't going to waste any more time and money. They were going to halt construction and go back to the drawing board and redevelop some different plans and designs to, to come up with a different idea. Let me just be clear. What is the scenario then that uh, people living around the lake should be worried about? Uh, what does the Army Corps say is the worst-case scenario for Lake Okeechobee? Well, you know, ac- according to their maps and their, their plans that they've put together for evacuations, you know, one, one example, I guess, there, there's a, a whole lot of different scenarios. One example is that if the lake were at 21 feet and a major hurricane were to come through today, a breach could occur on the south side. If that did occur, flooding could extend about 32 miles south and remain inundated for up to 45 days as they repair the dike. Now, we're not talking uh, neck-deep water here. Uh, they, they think it would probably be maybe knee-deep that far out. Um, but this is what they call a apocalyptic scenario, their doomsday scenario, that they're saying would really never occur because the lake is never going to be at 21 feet. There's a lot of hurricane history uh, at Lake Okeechobee. Tell me about the storm of 1928. Sure. Actually, there were there were two. Um, the first one came through in 1926. Um, that one uh, severely devastated the area around Lake Okeechobee. Obviously, there wasn't a dike there at the time, so it just pushed the waters over Lake Okeechobee. Um, at that time, about 4,200 people were killed, but that was throughout Florida, Mississippi, and Alabama. Um, Herbert Hoover then, who was president, got to work with federal officials and state officials to start trying to come up with a remedy for this problem. They didn't come up with it soon enough. Then in 1928, another hurricane came through, swept over the lake, and just pushed a ton of water out into the towns around the southern portion of the lake, killed about 2,500 people. At that point, the Corps got to work and started building this dike around the lake. Uh, In 1932 is when they started. In 1970, they completed it. Is there anyone around who remembers the uh, big storm in 1928? Sure. There, there's a, these towns tend to keep their residents. A lot of people that live here have lived here their entire lives. There's multiple generations. So there's a number of people around that, that remember the 1928 hurricane. Uh, one guy I spoke to named Hager Lowe, he's in his 80s. He remembers riding out the 1928 storm on a houseboat off a tributary off of Lake Okeechobee with his family, um, saying it was just terrifying with the howling wind and the water and the rain pelting down. And, and that by the next morning, once the hurricane passed, they went to go find their house and their house was completely gone. So they basically survived by leaving their house and taking refuge on a houseboat. The memories are still very vivid. In in Belle Glade, one of the towns down there, there's a, actually a statue that stands in front of the city hall. Of a, It's a really interesting statue of a, a mother and a father and a young child. The mother's clutching a baby and they're sort of running and looking back over their heads and there's these uh, um, waves coming at them and it's just a plaque to commemorate the 2,500 some people that died in the area there when that storm did flood through. Brian Skoloff is the West Palm Beach correspondent for the Associated Press. Brian, thanks for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. Well, the tornado and hurricane season is here. It's the busy time of year for Brad Webb. His Tulsa, Oklahoma company, Storm Safe Rooms, produces steel-reinforced shelters from violent windstorms. Mr. Webb, hello. How you doing? Now, could you just briefly describe what one of your safe rooms looks like? Well, our... Our best-selling safe room is a four-foot by six-foot box, basically. Six-foot, two-inch tall headroom. Got a little folding two-person bench in the unit for people to sit on. About 90% of them slide into the garage and bolt down. 
some of our safe rooms, of course, you can put electrical switches in them and light switches and recepts, and uh, you can insulate them, screw sheetrock to them, trim them, paint them, make them look like the rest of the house, and you can't even tell it's a safe room. So how do you know that they're safe, that they can survive a Category 5 hurricane or a tornado? Well, a lot of people are kind of skeptical about them. They've, all they've heard about is in-ground shelters from the old days when their grandfather and grandmother had. But they have a test for the, the, the Federal Emergency Management Agency paid Texas Tech University to uh, engineer these for an F-5. They've got a wind research tunnel. And it also developed a uh, flying debris cannon that shoots this 16-pound, 16-foot tube before into the side of one of these like a missile, simulating a 250-mile-an-hour speed wind. And give you an idea just how tough that test is, here a few years back during the Tulsa Home and Garden Show, we dropped a 1989 Lincoln Continental 40 feet using a 100-ton crane doing a demonstration for the Home and Garden Show. Yeah. We dropped it onto this safe room two times and just demolished the car. And uh, we didn't even make a dent in this safe room. Now, are these designed to survive floods and earthquakes as well? Well, no. Of course, a a flood, uh, nobody wants to be in a floodplain. If you're in the hurricane country, and it wouldn't be a good idea to be in an in-ground or above-ground safe room. Now, I got an ethical question for you. Somebody has a storm-safe room. It's got room for, let's say, six people, and there are ten people there. Maybe the folks next door. Maybe the kids from down the block are there. What are they going to do? Well, five square feet per person is the standard. But I've heard, you know, I've heard uh, stories at the home and garden shows about tornado came through the area, and we've got a six-by-eight shelter that holds you know, nine or ten people, and we had 16 people in there, you know, and two dogs. So, I mean, uh, I'm not sure if I was grandma and grandpa and the kids were all visiting and tornadoes coming through, we wouldn't, you know, leave them out in the garage. Is it a good idea to let your neighbors know that you have one of these things? Well, you know, most people are pretty private about them, really. Uh, Sometimes when I was first starting this business, I had little signs made showed us, you know, we were my name and phone number in the front yard where we were putting one in, and uh, about 9 out of 10 customers didn't really want me to even display a sign. So it seems to be a pretty private thing. They don't want the neighbors from down the street to come running up and bang on their door at the last minute, huh? Yeah, and uh, some neighbors, you know, are, are more worried about, you know, a little bit of wind, and, and they're running, you know, calling them and running over to the house, and one guy might think it's no big deal, Wish they weren't coming over every time the wind blows, you know. What do you suppose people think they're going to do otherwise? I think it's out of sight, out of mind business. <laughs> Until you really have one of them big F5 bad boys or an F4 or even an F2 bear down right directly on you. I mean, it's it can be pretty frightening. Until then, you know, a lot of folks just think it's never going to happen to me, you know. Kind of like I'm never going to have a... One guy explained it to me when I put a shelter in... I hope I never have to use it, and I hope I never have a head-on collision in my car, but I'm going to keep wearing my seatbelt. Well, thank you so much, sir, for filling us in on the Storm Safe Rooms. You're welcome. I appreciate it. Brad Webb is owner of Storm Safe Rooms in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can hear
hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your iPod or other personal listening device. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. CDs and transcripts are $15. Coming up, a river runs through it. Yes, Los Angeles has a river, and it's cleaning up its act. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Kashi, whose Day of Change tour features yoga lessons, natural food cooking demos, and Kashi cereals, crackers, and granola bars. Details at Kashi.com. The Kresge Foundation, investing in nonprofits to help them catalyze growth, connect to stakeholders, and challenge greater support. On the web at Kresge.org. And the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities. On the web at WKKF.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Coming up, a river runs through it. Yes, Los Angeles has a river, and it's cleaning up its act. First, this note on emerging science from Tobin Hack. is a slippery concept, so people use spatial metaphors in their speech and gestures to represent the movement of time. For example, we gesture forward when we talk about the future and backward when speaking about our past, at least most people, not the Aymara. The Aymara, an indigenous people in the Andean highlands of Bolivia, Peru, and Chile, put their past in front of them and their future behind. Each of the roughly 6,000 languages spoken around the world incorporates subtle cultural differences into this spatial metaphor for time, but the Aymara diverge completely from the global norm. Ask an Aymara speaker to tell a story about his ancestors, and he'll gesture towards the space in front of him. Ask him about his plans for tomorrow, and he'll point behind him. College student Rafael Nunez noticed this phenomenon while hitchhiking in the Andes over a decade ago. Intrigued, he returned with a Ph.D. in cognitive science to conduct formal research. Nunez found that, for the Aymara, seeing is literally believing. An Aymara speaker always qualifies even the most mundane statement by indicating what they saw or did not see. With such great emphasis placed on vision, it's no wonder that the Aymara locate the past in front of them. They have, literally, seen it with their own eyes. By the same token, the future is the great mysterious expanse that will always lie behind them, unseen and unknown. But today, while the future may still lie behind the Aymara, it's rapidly catching up with them. Global mass communication seems to be taking a toll. Young Aymara speakers are reorienting their spatial metaphor for time. Now, if you ask them to talk about tomorrow, they'll point ahead, putting their past behind them. This latest research suggests that our spatial perception of time is relative and not universal. It's a function of our culture and our language. Einstein would have been pleased. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Tobin Heck. Since the Industrial Revolution, people have counted on the rivers to be workhorses, ferrying goods, turning the mills, and absorbing pollution flushed out of factories. So in the past, many cities turned their backs on their foul-smelling, channelized rivers. 
It would be a sorry contest, but perhaps nowhere has the neglect been greater than Los Angeles. Yes, there is a river in L.A., though you might mistake its often dry, concrete-lined bed for another freeway. After decades of viewing the Los Angeles River as a flood control channel and as a joke, Angelinos are now working to revive their river. From member station KPCC in L.A., Ilsa Setziel tells about the ruin and possible rebirth of the Los Angeles River. Near Dodger Stadium, a mostly Latino and Asian neighborhood called Elysian Valley backs up on the river. Joe Linton pushes his bike into tiny Rattlesnake Park. So this pocket park actually was a dumping area. There were mattresses and trash. When the crews were clearing away the trash, they actually found a family of rattlesnakes. The park is just a few trees, a bench, and an elegant gate depicting a pair of herons. The strategy to date has been kind of opportunistic. And so a lot of the reclaiming that's been done has been planting these native trees, using the artwork, the river rocks, to begin to bring back a sense of a river, even though the river itself still needs a lot of work. But really the complexion of the river's begun to change with these small interventions strung together. Linton, who is with Friends of the Los Angeles River, slides onto his bike and heads downstream along the top of a levee toward downtown L.A. He passes rows of newly planted trees and nine mini-parks. Angelinos are starting to gather in these and other new parks, enjoying the river in places that used to be fenced off. Downstream, at a new 30-acre state park, a group of cyclists gathers at the end of an evening of performance art. Nelson Ornelas, Eric Crawford, and Philip Franco kick around ideas for the river. I've seen the city live up. I've seen it changing, the transformation. This used to be a railroad track. We used to come here and party, my gang. I love this transformation. This city's got so much vibe, so much potential. We're in the desert. We need this water. Could there ultimately be cafes on the L.A. River where you just maybe, have a, a glass of wine? Trucks. Maybe taco trucks. <laughs> Certain parts of the day. In fact, many Angelinos now want a lot from this river. More parks, cleaner water, a fix for neglected neighborhoods, and a healthier inner city. But it's hard to overstate the challenge. When Los Angeles had a wild river, the stream had the run of the place. It wandered all over the L.A. basin, roaring when it rained, trickling in the hot summers. The river's tributaries rushed out of the mountains surrounding the city, including the 9,000-foot San Gabriel Mountains. At the foot of the San Gabriels, ornithologist Kimball Garrett of the L.A. County Natural History Museum surveys a reservoir behind a large dam built for flood protection. A black-crowned night heron perches in a willow, motionless, waiting out the day. Ruddy ducks, cormorants, and western grebes cruise through glassy water. Garrett says as the L.A. River flowed into the basin and out to sea, it would weave around a broad prairie, filling up low-lying areas. 
lot of sort of backwater areas that did grow up to what you could really call a riparian forest or jungle. Cottonwoods, willows, vines and tangles that would go on and on and on. Extensive marshlands. There are species that bred there that have completely disappeared. Things like the yellow-billed cuckoo, long-eared owl. The river also created habitat for arroyo toads, red-legged frogs, and other species that have disappeared from the watershed. Even large ocean-dwelling steelhead trout were here. Born in the mountain headwaters, they grew big and sleek in the ocean and would return to spawn some 50 miles upstream. But as Angelinos built homes, businesses, and farms in the L.A. Basin, people diverted water out of the river into pipes, leaving much of it dry in the summer. Los Angeles City Councilman Ed Reyes. The river became essentially where you hid your gas lines, your pipelines, your power lines, your rail lines, and you let those people live there. And so it became a social and economic divider. They defined it as a place in which you send those other people to the other side of the tracks. In the late 1930s, Ralph Lopez Urbina lived here. He and his pals swam in the river when it was still marshy and green. They captured pigeons roosting on the bridges. We also did a little fishing because there were river minnows in the water. And there were uh, pollywogs and frogs. And and then there was uh, the red crayfish, bright crimson, you know. We used to like to capture them and study them and play with them and... I would play hooky from school to go to the L.A. River. Really, you know, because it was a lot more interesting. (laughs) As Los Angeles sprawled, people built right up close to the river and on land where it sometimes flooded, so that when a record flood came in 1938, it damaged $60 million in property and killed 59 people. Enter the Army Corps of Engineers with a plan to confine the wayward current to a concrete channel. It took 25 years, but nearly all the river's 52 miles were paved. Still, nature persisted where it could. North of downtown, there's an eight-mile stretch where there's no concrete on the bottom. Ducks still nest here, among willow trees laden with trash. Long-legged shorebirds stride alongside graffiti scrawled on the concrete bank. They dip their slender bills into treated wastewater that constitutes most of the river's flow today. In the 1980s, a group of artists, like the Taggers, saw all that concrete as a blank canvas, a place for a different vision. Poet Lewis McAdams and others founded Friends of the Los Angeles River. The basic line was meeting people down by the river and making the river a place where people gather in the central city, in the place where the city, the reason the city is here is because of the Los Angeles River. They dreamt of a real river, Bureaucrats initially dismissed the idea as quixotic. But after a decade of legal and public relations efforts, their attitudes began to change. Los Angeles is now developing a new river master plan. Atop a levee, Joe Linton continues his ride. His dream is of jackhammers. He says they'd go a long way. Full-scale restoration is probably not possible. The river used to wander around, and we've pretty much developed it. But the truth is, a lot of stretches that don't have any real riparian habitat, that don't have places where water touches the earth, could be restructured and rebuilt, terraced, reconfigured. They won't be fully natural. There'll be some sort of reinforcement. But they won't be just water running over concrete anymore. But Angelinos aren't likely to see large-scale removal of concrete in the near future. 
Engineers say the smooth and barren channel speeds stormwater out to the ocean, so it doesn't flood. Colonel Alex Dornstadter of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers says the channel needs to stay robust. At storm level, we're passing approximately the same amount of water as comes down the Colorado River. The elevation change from the mountains to the ocean is about the same as you'd find in the entire course of the Mississippi River. That speed presents a challenge for greening the river. Fast flows will just rip out new vegetation. There's more green on Dornstouter's fatigues than in the channel near where we're standing. He says more vegetation in the channel would slow down the water, increasing the flood risk. If we're going to change the dynamics of the channel, if we're going to not allow the velocity to flow specifically along the concrete, we're going to have to increase the area. Or if we're going to roughen up the surface with vegetation, it's going to have to increase the area. One solution, then, is giving the river more room. That's possible in some places. Los Angeles plans to focus on five areas where there's enough open space to widen the channel or make new parks. Melanie Winter of the environmental group The River Project says the city created some of these difficulties for itself. That's because it required the waterway to receive nearly every drop of rain that falls on streets and rooftops. Which it never was tasked with doing before. The ground, the dirt throughout took its share and it no longer is, it's no longer allowed to. It's by ordinance, every drop is supposed to fall into a concrete gutter and hence the storm drain and hence the Los Angeles River. Melanie Winter dips her toes into the river at Sepulveda Basin, a flood control area in the San Fernando Valley. With no concrete on the bottom here, the water licks at the bare earth. It swerves around willow trees, tugs at plastic bags, races through the grates of abandoned shopping carts. Winter says despite the obstacles, a major restoration is possible. If enough people agree and find it to be a priority for them, it's absolutely possible. Oh, the kingfisher. Yeah, they're here all the time. The only reason people haven't, other people haven't made it a priority is they haven't come down here and been surprised by a kingfisher and realized that that's in their own backyard. Winter says to ease the burden on the L.A. River, Los Angeles needs to allow more rainwater to filter into the ground instead of washing onto streets. Not just because stormwater flow is so heavy, but because it gets nastier the farther it flows. It's dirty because storm drains empty out into the L.A. River without any treatment whatsoever. David Nahai, chair of the Los Angeles Regional Water Quality Control Board. What is left on our streets goes into the storm drains, into our waterways, and out to the ocean. It's a very stark equation. Pet feces, oftentimes human fecal material, to oil, grease, fertilizers, pesticides, and of course, the ubiquitous litter. Nahai glares at the food wrappers and soda cans littering a levee. Every year, he says, the county hauls out enough trash to fill about 200 dump trucks. To clean up the river, the Water Board is setting regulations on dozens of contaminants using a previously ignored section of the Federal Clean Water Act. But there's debate over the goal. Should a river that's become a storm drain be held to a fishing and swimming standard? The Water Board says yes. But some say, why? 
people aren't allowed to swim in the river anymore. Larry Forrester is vice mayor of Signal Hill. We prohibit entry into the river right now. I don't think that should change. Now, do I think some of the side areas could be used to develop parks as long as we keep people out of the water? Yes. And then there are the freeways. Much of the Los Angeles River is shadowed by four of them. But to L.A. City Councilman Ed Reyes, the urban blight surrounding the river is all the more reason to transform it. This happens to be where working folks live, people of color live. We have to go to the places that has the greatest effect, that has the greatest potential to cause relief, to create healing. And I think you need to go into the areas that's the most severe. The years of neglect and fencing installed to keep people out have made the Los Angeles River a good hideout for the homeless and for youth, some in and some out of trouble. This is kind of no man's land down here. Nettie Carr of Friends of Atwater Village walks a stretch of the river in the Latino community of South Atwater. LAPD, they only come down here if there's something really wrong. The homeless know that it's a very safe place for them, so they didn't congregate down here. The gangs do too because they also have a safe haven. They jump over this fence and nobody can get to them, you know. Nettie Carr wants to help kids stay out of trouble by making them guardians of their river. In Atwater, in Central South Atwater, we have no amenities for the youth. We don't have a playground, we don't have a basketball court, we don't have anything. It can be a real corridor through L.A. that's really about pedestrian and bicycling and not about driving. Continuing his ride, Joe Linton of Friends of the L.A. River scoots off his bike at another tiny park. This is called Steelhead Park. You can see on the fences there's sort of a motif of a steelhead trout. Up until the 40s, the river was home to steelhead. We'll know our job is done when the steelhead returned to the L.A. River. Joe Linton also stops at a confluence of a tributary. But what's really noticeable is the confluence of the 5 and 110 freeways. This is where the Spanish explorers first encountered the L.A. River, or at least first wrote about it. They found large oaks and willows and sycamores, wild roses. They described it as a lush and pleasant spot in every aspect. Linton heads back upriver. The sun rides low, suffusing the sky with a pink glow. The Union Pacific chugs by. Evening commuters whisk by, their lights flashing. Down by the river, ducks settle in for the night. Linton sees the still silhouette of a heron reflected in the flowing water. And he rides through the slim shadows of the young sycamores atop the concrete bank. For Living on Earth, I'm Ilsa Setzel. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Chris Ballman, Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, and Jeff Young, with help from Christopher Bullock, Kelly Cronin, and James Kerwood. Our interns are Bobby Bascom and Tobin Hack. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. Kashi, whose Day of Change tour features yoga lessons, natural food cooking demos, and an array of Kashi products. Details at kashi.com. Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you in the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. This is NPR, National Public Radio.